This is Women and Justice, and my name is Dr. Shante James. Controversy has hit this department. I'm talking about African-American studies programs. I really wanted to know the reason why. Typically, African-American studies programs examine the history of people of African descent from the colonial period through the present. This includes studying racial inequality and social movements and exposing students to the ideas, institution, and practices that African-American people have used to survive and shape the modern world. It seems like a simplistic model to me, but I wanted to understand more about the field and the nuances associated with some of the topics over the next 30 minutes. I knew to find Dr. Young. This is her area. And she has numerous publications. But I also knew that she had a spin on the topic and discussion. Let me turn the mic over now to Dr. Young as she officially introduces herself and highlights her body of work as it relates to the podcast. Hello, I am Cynthia Young. I am a scholar and activist and um, university leader. I guess that's how I would define myself. Um, I My degree is in American studies, but uh, what that means is that I focus in African-American studies because I got my degree before that was a thing at the institution I went to. Um, and I work on social movements, uh, black women, women of color more broadly, and their relationship to attaining justice for marginalized communities and how they do that. And I specifically look at um, culture. So uh, film, music, any other kind of cultural productions, theater, uh, the ways in which those have been formats and forms for um, disseminating visions of justice that are different from the ones we currently have. So my first book was on uh, the 1960s, and now I'm doing a book that is almost kind of the opposite of what I've all just described, but that's just how we interdisciplinary scholars can be. I'm doing a book on uh, that's called Terror Wars, Culture Wars, which is about how um, the U.S. response to 9-11 created new forms of surveillance, new uh, forms of racialization, um, particularly in relationship to immigrants, to Muslims, uh, to black people, to white people. So that's what this newer project is about. Okay, so I'm going to step you back and try to, because it's only 30 minutes, so I'm going to try to touch on a variety of things. Um, I did have, as I was researching you and looking you up, I did notice uh, your first book. Um, so mm -hmm. I am going to ask you to talk just a little bit about that um, to give people an idea of kind of your, your research in the past, and then I'll bring you forward um, to your current work. Sounds good. So the first book um, really starts in 1959 and it goes through sort of early 1970s. And what I was doing was was talking about a group that I called U.S. Third World Leftists. 
Um, the point I was making or the argument I was making is that there were these group of people who didn't quite fit into the black power box, and they also didn't really fit into the mainstream civil rights um, movement box. They were really people who were very inspired by anti-colonial str struggles around the world, you know, specifically Cuba, uh, but also um, what's happening in China, uh, what's happening in the Caribbean. They're, they're influenced by all of these um, different anti-colonial movements, and they use those movements to think about their own situation in the U.S. And you see them doing that through the films they were making. So there's a group of filmmakers called Third World Newsreel, who I write about. Uh, there's another group before them called Newsreel that I write about. And then I also look at some um, filmmakers from uh, L.A., from UCLA, sort of the first generation of black filmmakers who get into UCLA film school. So that's the that's the book. OK, so as you're looking at the book and you're starting to divide define that time period, how would you define justice during that time period? Well, one thing I was arguing is that at the time I was writing, people were arguing that uh, Black people who are talking about what they call Black identity politics have a very narrow sense of justice, right? It's not as broad as some others. And that critique was really coming from people who were active in the 1960s who were white men. And 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 their kind of focus was we used to be able to, you know, meet across all these different um divides. And now everyone's, you know, divided up and stratified and that has really narrowed the definition of justice. And I was actually arguing against that and saying in fact if you look at the filmmakers I talk about or the writers I talk about or the union workers I talk about, in every case, their sense of justice is very capacious. It's very big. So they're talking about justice in terms of, you know, racism and anti-Black racism in particular, but they're also talking about it in terms of anti-colonialism. But they're also talking about it in terms of access to fair um, you know, wages for their jobs and good housing instead of, you know, segregated rundown housing. So in all of these movements, the banner that they used might have seemed narrow or could be thought of as narrow, but it really was encompassing a sense of justice for lots of different communities, whether they were black or not. So as you are, as I looked at your more current work, how are you, how is that definition of justice changing in your mind? So I think I'm looking at justice from the perspective of mainstream uh, cultural producers, politicians, um, and how they try to construct an, an idea of what justice was after the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon that was actually quite narrow and actually unjust and not just. So it's a sort of opposite companion to my earlier work. I really got interested in how certain figures, whether you you could talk about, you know, Colin Powell um, going to the UN and uh, making the case for going into Iraq. Uh, you could talk about Condoleezza Rice. Um, you could talk about mainstream um, television and the way in which blackness is being used. So on a show like 24, for example, but even more recently, Homeland. 
um, you could almost, you know, there's this argument that justice looks like a certain kind of militarization, surveillance, et cetera, lots of things that many of us have had critiques of since 2001. Um, and my argument really is that lots of people were using blackness and specifically the civil rights legacy to justify uh, these things that I think are antithetical to, you know, justice. So that's, I don't know if that's clear. I feel like maybe I'm being a little abstract, but it was really an attempt to think about justice from the perspective of those who use that language, but for purposes I would not consider to be just, if that makes sense. It does. So let me ask one more layer to that. So sure. in us being more inclusive in that definition, how do you frame or how do you see us moving forward in being more inclusive from your earlier work to mm -hmm. the book that you're doing now to say, um, because I would agree with you during that time period, um, people uh, say, well, you're making a divide. Well, no, I'm trying to tell you the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. Are we repeating mm -hmm. that same historical moment in your mind, especially since you look at different um, venues? Yeah, I don't think so. So let me give you a very concrete example. Um, I write about the New York Police Department's surveillance of Muslim communities that happens, you know, post 9-11. And, you know, they're doing all sorts of things that previously um, had not been done and are also illegal. So they're going into mosques, right, to spy on people because there was this idea that mosques are these incubators for terrorism, et cetera. Um, and these are largely immigrant Muslim communities that this is happening to um, in, in the operations I'm talking about. However, we know there's a long history of surveillance by police, by the FBI, COINTELPRO, et cetera, of Black people and Black Muslims, right? And so part of the argument I'm trying to make is that if we try to think about how power works and how oppression works and how state violence works, we could actually find common ground. We could find places where different kinds of communities could work together for justice, right? And so one of the missed opportunities, I think, of that moment is that Muslim communities, as they're realizing that this is going on, there's a big AP story on this Muslim surveillance operation. It goes, you know, it stops. They never found any terrorists. It was all just a giant waste of time, money, energy, um, and of course, unethical. Um, they never really did had a moment where they kind of reached out to other communities that have experienced that same thing, right? So there wasn't a moment where immigrant Muslims and black Muslims were really talking with each other and dialoguing about um, the fact that some of the same things are going on, right? At a certain moment, Cer certain forms of racialization, that's what I would say, certain forms of identifying people by their religion, by their color as inherently dangerous, as inherently prone to terrorism, those kinds of things. That's very, very familiar to black people and certainly to black Muslims, but there wasn't a kind of um, dialogue between those two communities. Um, and the irony of it is that the NYPD 
had to overturn a consent decree that had been put in place because they had been spying on the Black Panthers and doing some of these same things. They had to get that overturned in the wake of 9-11 in order to do the thing they did in Muslim communities. So that gives you a sense of the fact that these linkages are really important because I do believe that just because it's one community one day or one year or one you know era doesn't mean it's not going to come for another community um you know state violence can be very um nimble in terms of who it targets at different moments it doesn't um necessarily only have one target or only primarily one target it can have many and it shifts depending upon the historical context so Based upon your research, how do you get that community to realize this may be happening to me at that moment, but let us reach out to other communities or this is a familiar story. Um, mm -hmm. How do we start to get people to talk when I would argue they're kind of saying this is happening to me, I'm focused on me, I'm focused on mm -hmm. how do you get that well, shift? You know. I think the obvious answer I have to give, given what I do for a living, is that you do the research and you make the argument and you put it out there, right? And it's part of how people come to consciousness about the kinds of things and the kinds of parallels and the kinds of common causes, the kinds of solidarities that can be built. But it's always a project of solidarity building, right? It's, it's saying to people, I may not have exactly the same experience as you, but here are the ways, here are the intersections, right? Here are the ways in which our oppressions overlap or here are the ways in which the state treats us similarly. What can we do about that? Um, instead of each time something like this happens, reinventing the wheel, right? And having it be like, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing this thing. Well, they did it in the 1960s. They did it after 2001. They've done it pri at prior moments and they will in future moments. So we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. We could actually learn the lessons of activists um, and scholars, you know, and and work from that premise. But I do think it's also about understanding that you can make alliances and you can build solidarities without having exactly the same experience. Right. You can do that based upon a set of values, et cetera, right? It doesn't have to just be like, well, I'm a Muslim from X place. And so therefore I don't have anything in common with, you know, a black healthcare worker um, in Chicago. And in building those alliances, I wonder, or I guess I'm questioning, especially in your research, are people open to building those alliances or is it just, this is not happening to us? Mm. So I'm not, which to me is a different, um, but mm -hmm. I question whether or not um, that's kind of this record that we all keep playing. Well, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not a woman, so I don't have to worry about it. Hey, I'm not this, so I don't have it. So I question, and I, I, I think, especially in your first book to me, um, mm. you start bringing that conversation of, hey, here's this historical, but then here is some connections. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder whether or not the members of society are open to the alliance or is it let's keep our doors shut we're safe when it hits yeah. our door then 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 maybe i'll have a conversation and i and i put i question whether or not the maybe even kind of comes <laughs> yeah 
I mean, I'm an optimist. I think okay. you have to be to do this work to some extent, or I mean, at least a cautious optimist. Okay. And so I guess what I would say is that um, we really don't have a choice. And so there are, I mean, sure, there are always going to be groups um, or entities who are like, it's just about us and I can't, you know, I can't focus out there. But I have often found as an activist that often when you make things visible to people and you show them kind of places where there are linkages, even if it's not as, you know, the example isn't necessarily as, as extreme as the one they have that there's a sense of inherent injustice that does call people to action. I mean, we could even think about just the various union movements that have happened um, and, and the ways in which unions are becoming this place where people are pushing back against a kind of, um, you know, very alienating, very toxic work environment. Um, you know, there have been several union um movements and union strikes happening over just the last year. And they're not based upon everyone having the same identity, right? I mean, screenwriters, yes, they're they're based upon the fact that they're all screenwriters, but in very different contexts, very different identities. Same with the actor strike, same with UPS, um, you know, same with Amazon. It wasn't really based upon everyone having a kind of you know, racial or religious identity or cultural identity that was the same. It was like, we are facing these conditions and we are facing a very powerful opponent. And if we don't figure out how to speak across difference to get to better wages, to get to better health care, we will be subject to the kinds of, you know, terrible working conditions that unions were created to get rid of. So I guess I think I see examples of it um, out in the world. I see examples of it in terms of people really being much more conscious about mass incarceration and the the evils of that, um, even when it has not affected every community, as we know, proportionately, right? Like it, it has really hit black and brown community, communities incredibly hard. But what I'm seeing out in the landscape is more and more people talking about it as a harm that can't be tolerated, even if it doesn't focus on, you know, another community um, outside of the ones I've just, you know, identified. Okay. Um, just because of time, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit sure. and take you to your academic world and specifically okay. um, just leadership and looking at where you see women positioned in the academic world right now. So what I would say is that, um, you know, I got into academic leadership accidentally, but I got into it for many of the kind of structural reasons that, um, you know, are particular to black women. Right. So I was denied tenure. And part of what that meant was that I had to look for jobs. And one of the jobs that I looked for and got was a job to chair a department. Um, and that kind of launched me there. I never thought about myself as an administrator. Um, when I got to that department, what I found was a department that had not been invested in, that had, you know, basically not been given the resources, didn't have good leadership, and had basically fallen into disarray. And that is the same story I've seen in the two other places I've been, though to, to lesser or more degrees, right? So when I was at Penn State, um, which I just left, 
um, there were some building blocks there, but not that many. I've just come to Ohio State where I'm chairing African-American and African studies, and there are some things put in place and hires happening, but after this long period of dormancy. So the kinds of um, investments that I have as a scholar um, have become investments in building institutionally in a way that I didn't really imagine before, right? So it's really important to me that the kind of work I do and the kind of work that many, many people do who are in Black studies, broadly conceived, that that work have a kind of central perch in colleges and universities. And so if I want that to be the case, it has become very clear to me, I need to do things like take on leadership um, in these departments, um, because once you are a leader, then you can do things like hire um, you know, a diverse faculty, try to retain a diverse faculty, try to promote a diverse faculty, try to provide courses um, that undergraduates of all backgrounds are interested in that aren't already reflected in the curriculum, try to you know, create other professors, create a pipeline, right, by having a strong graduate program. So those are all things that um, I've had to do and, and wanted to do as um, the chair of a department, but I think as a black woman doing it, in a marginalized field, the challenges I face are different from the ones that are faced by someone who's, say, the chair of an English department or a history department, right? Because as um, a Black woman, you're always, um, let me not say that, that's not right. There can be the tendency to be underestimated. There can be people, you can definitely find people who think that by virtue of you representing the department you do that you know there's something suspect right so i have to i've had to justify you know just the existence of my department and why it's necessary and why it's necessary to have um you know our courses in the general education curriculum why it's necessary to have more scholars um etc cetera, etc cetera, in ways that english and history um, at least as a general field, don't have to do. Now, there might be pockets, right? Like people who are saying like, well, why do we need X kind of history or X kind of English? But it's not the same kind of um, thing that um, is faced when you're the leader of an interdisciplinary department that emerged out of the call for justice and out of opposition to anti-Black racism, right? So you're inherently, if you're in a PWI, if you're in a predominantly white institution, you are inherently, at least structurally, at odds with the institution in which you are. Right? Where you exist, because, right. Yeah. And so that just provides a lot of... Um, There are a lot more challenges, I guess, is what I would say. And it's a good thing I like a challenge because you definitely face a lot more challenges when you're dealing with, um, you know, the population and the 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 field that I represent. So I'll give you a very clear example. We've just restarted our graduate program here after a period of not having one because there was not an investment. Um, one of our incoming graduate students wrote to us and said, I need money to get to Columbus, right? Like I, I need to be able to rent a car to come to Columbus. And I don't have that money. 
Um, and also, I don't know how I'm going to pay first month's rent because, you know, when you come to graduate school, you're usually you're waiting <laughs> to get paid and and you're waiting to get paid till the end of September. Right. right? And so. I said, you know, I, I was like, right, because when you have underrepresented communities going to graduate school, they don't have family. Well, they don't have the kind of access to resources. They don't have credit cards with limits that will allow them to do that. Um, you have to think differently. And so as I started reaching out to people, the first thing I heard from people was like, oh, well, we've never had that kind of request before. And, you know, we can't pay someone's rent and so on and so forth. And it's because most of the time, the people who are graduate students that they're encountering come with access to money and resources. Um, if you want to change what the professoriate looks like, and if you want people who have formerly been absent, kept out, locked out, then you actually have to do things like think about how they're going to get, you know, give them money for moving expenses, which is not something we typically do for graduate students. You have to think about how can I subsidize their rent? Um, how can I make sure they're not food insecure in that first month before they start the, you know, they get paid as a graduate assistant. So those are things that I don't, I don't know are necessarily typically faced by other kinds of departments. Um, and maybe, it's different at a public institution too, but it's really important to me that this kind of degree be accessible to people at a public institution and not just at the Columbia's and the Princeton's and the NYU's, right? Like it should be here and it should be accessible for people who um, aren't often seen in the academy. So, cause we're getting close to time, unfortunately. So I got a couple of questions <laughs> okay. um, with that. How do you start to have those conversations to say, these are some of the things that we need to put into place now? Um, mm -hmm. And then I guess the other thing would be, which would be the backlash of your discussion. Um, more people are saying, well, if we don't really need this program, why don't we get rid of this program? Mm -hmm. And please, mm -hmm. no one email me. I do not, but... <laughs> Right. <laughs> I don't need that right. email. Um, right. But yeah. how do you deal with that backlash? Especially, um, I would assume, and I'm guessing, that you are receiving a lot, especially with uh, the policies and the changes legally that have occurred mm -hmm. lately. Mm -hmm. um, one could argue or say to you, right. are you doing the student a disservice by them gaining this degree? Hmm. Please, again, so, let me put the preface. I do not believe this, anybody. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of answers to that question. Okay. Um, and we don't have time for me to, you know, address it maybe as fully as I would like to. But I guess what I would say is this. Excellence and the pursuit of excellence is not intrinsic to only some areas or some fields. It, excellence and brilliance and genius and creativity and innovation are found around the world in all contexts, whether you have money or don't, whether you're black or not, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And corporations understand that, right? That's why there has been this push in corporate America to have people who think in different ways, you know, who are neurodivergent, who are come, come from um, impoverished communities, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's something that corporate America gets. And I don't think any, um, you know, 
anti-DEI campaigns, anti-affirmative action Supreme Court rulings. I don't think that's going to stop that because at the end of the day, having a very eclectic, diverse workforce is good for their bottom line. Otherwise, they would not do it. And so that says to me that we will need to be educating people who, even if they don't represent identities that are marginalized, can think about, can think capaciously, can think broadly, can think in nuanced and intricate ways about a very complex world and a very complex set of problems we are all facing as as a world community. And so that means AAAS is here to stay. Like there is no community or university or college where the questions that are facing African-American studies and African descended people around the globe are not also being faced by all sorts of other people. And so I don't really worry so much about people saying, well, why would you get this degree? In fact, what we've seen in my experience is that just looking at the job market for professors over the last couple of years, tons of jobs in African-American studies. Not so many jobs in, say, you know, Victorian lit, which obviously, actually, I love because I was an English major and, you know, I, I love the Victorians, but not so many people hiring in that field, right? A lot of people hiring in African-American studies. And so what I often think is that people's idea that if you get a degree in African-American or black studies, that that is somehow going to make you, you know, not marketable, that it's not going to mean you can get a job. I've seen exactly the opposite of that be true, both for my undergraduates and my graduate students. My graduate students all have jobs. And that is not true for many people who are in other more traditional fields where there's been a glut for quite some time. My undergraduates, what I say to them is you, you pursue the thing that you love you ask questions, you use your critical thinking skills, you use your critical writing and, and written and oral expression skills, all of those things you're getting in a black studies department, and you go to med school, and you go to other places, you go to law school, you go wherever it is you want to go, but there is no environment in which that will not serve you incredibly well. Um, and that's just been my experience. It's my own personal experience in terms of, you know, my own educational experience, but also the students, you know, that I've been teaching over, you know, 20 plus years, the people who they didn't all end up as professors. Most of them didn't, but they have ended up in all sorts of places, in museums, in, um, you know, uh, public activism work in unions, in um, high schools, you know, they've just ended up in a variety of different places as lawyers, as doctors. So um, there's no putting um, the diversity genie back in the bottle. There's just not. Um, I was listening to something that was just really um it was about how Clarence Thomas, um, the Supreme Court Justice, yes. obviously, came to oppose affirmative action. And as I was listening to it, it was fascinating to think about how um, his read of affirmative action was so um, conditioned by his sense of personal grievance that people were looking at him and thinking that he was the recipient of affirmative action. And his like desire to like, you know, disprove that or somehow, you know, make sure they knew he was as good as they were. And to me, all of that just said, like, 
he needed a black studies education so badly, right? Like he really needed to think about, to think critically in a way that would have allowed him to set aside that kind of like bizarre paranoia that white supremacy can create in us. But the point is, whatever you do, however excellent you are, that thought is going to be out there in some people's minds. And if that becomes the reason that you can't do X or Y, or you feel insecure, you will never do anything like that's not, you know, that's kind of a, a premise that is just so kind of um, outdated, but also just if you had a critical lens about which to think about race, which is what you get in black studies, that wouldn't even be a concern. Yeah, that wouldn't be part of your agenda. No, you'd, you'd be like so far beyond it. OK, uh... Last question, because I am close to time where I'm almost at it time. Um, we'd like to end with just giving you space to kind of say, um, don't forget. What do you want us to not forget? Because you've given us a lot. The 30 minutes go by fast. <laughs> we really do. Don't forget that there are so many social justice um, battles all around you. You don't need to go far. You don't even need to go, you know, much beyond your block to find things that you can do to make a difference. Um, and don't forget that blackness, I guess, is a incredibly diverse um, identity um, that, you know, so many kinds of people um, affiliate themselves with or identify with. Um, it's never and, and never will be kind of one thing or some sort of standard thing. It is, you know, as diverse as humanity is, I guess. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Young gave us a different spin on this topic. Some of you may agree. Some of you may not agree. The goal is to make sure that we have those heated debates. November the 14th, my third book comes out. It's a cozy. But before that date, I have several uh, speaking engagements and book signing. Look for me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Again, I want to go back to the fact that today, Dr. Young said some things that may stir discussion. That's the key for me. Have a great day.